Hi there, welcome back to Waking Cosmos. Adrian here, very good to be with you. Today I'm sharing a conversation with the philosopher Toby Ord. Toby wrote the book The Precipice, which was the inspiration for my recent film Consciousness and Deep Time. And it was really an honour to get to speak with Toby about his work on existential risk, which for those of you who don't know, existential risks are risks which have the capacity of not simply causing human extinction, but in particular of destroying our vast potential in the universe. And as we talk about today, our potential in the universe is vast and open-ended. And in all likelihood, we currently inhabit a time at really the very beginning of what conscious, intelligent life might eventually author on the cosmic stage. Toby and I talk about a range of existential risks, including artificial intelligence and the existential risk that non-conscious AI could inherit our future. Just to give a bit more information about Toby, Toby Ord is a professor at Oxford University, where he specializes in ethics. And in addition to his more recent work on existential risk, Toby is one of the founders of the effective altruism movement. And while we don't discuss it all that much today, Effective altruism is another area that I'm personally very interested in. So hopefully Toby will come back at some point and we can discuss effective altruism in more depth in another conversation. I really hope you enjoy today's episode. If you're listening on YouTube, I encourage you to hit like, subscribe, click that little notifications bell for more episodes and comment below if you want to chat about the subjects that we explore in today's episode. All right, without further delay, I give you the brilliant mind of Toby Ord. Hi, Toby. Thanks for joining me today. Good to be with you. Oh, it's great to be here. Today, we're going to be focusing on your work looking at existential risk, which is incredibly important work for, I think, obvious reasons. But before we get into this subject of existential risk, Toby, you've had a very interesting career. You're one of the founders of the Effective Altruism Movement which is doing enormous good in the world. So perhaps you could give a brief account of what your career has been about up to now and how you've transitioned into this area of existential risk. Yeah, uh, wonderful place to start. I've always been inter interested in uh, doing good in the world, trying to make it a better place. Uh, you know, sometimes people talk about making it uh, you know, a better place than, than before you entered into it. But that, that seems to be too low a, a goal in my view. You know, why not make it as good as you could? And I've always been struck by how uh, through uh, charity, there are many opportunities where our money can do a lot more for others uh, than it can for ourselves. But this is uh, primarily because there are people who are much poorer in the world. People who are at the uh, World Bank poverty line in poor countries have about a hundredth of the income as the typical person in the UK where I live. And so our money can often go about a hundred times further. And so I'd, I'd always been motivated by this and would talk about these things with my friends as an undergrad. And then people would sometimes challenge me, <laughs> trying to make a reductio ad absurdum and say, well, you know, if you, if you have all of these idealistic views, uh, why don't you uh, uh, give all your money to help people who are starving in Africa, I think was the, the phrase they used at the time. 
you know, this is meant to shut me up, uh, but it actually made me really think about my values and why don't I do something like that and try to use it to, to help people much less fortunate than me. And so I'd, I'd thought about that for a while, and uh, that, that's one of my guiding ideas as I, I was originally studying science and moved into to ethics, trying to really think about how can we do as much as we can to, to help our fellow people or, or potentially animals as well. And uh, then a big change happened when, when I was in Oxford, and I was told about a big report on uh, health in developing countries called the Disease Control Priorities Project. And they'd found that some ways of helping people in poor countries are just much more effective than others. Uh, they had this big, uh, this big report, and the, the most effective ways they found were 10,000 times as effective as the least. The most effective ones were 100 times that of the median. So it wasn't just that there were some things that really didn't work, and we all kind of knew that, but that there was just this huge disparity between things. And that's where, for me, I think really my contribution to effective altruism uh, started. Uh, that's where the, the real focus on effectiveness came in, because I realized that as well as uh, using my resources to help other people, there's this question about how to, how to really help them as much as possible. If I hadn't found out this information about how to do more good, then most of the value I, I could have added would have been wasted if I did things that were 1% as good as what I could have done. That was really where it all started for me, and I kind of started putting these ideas together and uh, set up an organization called Giving What We Can, uh, which is still going strong, um, with members who make a pledge to give at least 10% of their income over the rest of their life to wherever it is that they think they can do the most to help others. How did that transition into your focus on existential risk? Was there a direct thread between your work with effective altruism and a concern about existential risk? Not really a, a direct thread. This is something where I arrived in Oxford to study in 2003, at the same time that Nick Bostrom arrived there. We were both kindred spirits and people put us in touch with each other. And we, we talked about lots of different things. Uh, but one of the key things we talked about was, uh, was Nick's work from a year earlier on existential risk, um, where he wrote this foundational paper. And it sounded at the surface level to be really important, you know, the, these threats to the whole of humanity. But at some level, it felt a little bit less grounded to me. All the people that, that I looked up to as kind of moral voices, they weren't talking about trying to prevent the end of the world. They were talking about helping those less fortunate than ourselves. And I still think these are two very valuable, very large projects that humanity can embark on and that we should embark on both of them. But there was something that, that felt a bit outlandish about avoiding risks of extinction. And it was only after a number of years. I mean, I should say, despite it being outlandish, I was still very interested and, and did work on it. But I felt some kind of moral caution to do with kind of throwing my full weight behind this. Because, you know, what if it was a mistake and it was, you know, somehow I just kind of fooled myself into believing that this thing was really important and it wasn't. Then, you know, that would be a big waste or something like that. That was my concern. But over time, I, I realized that I'd had the good fortune of growing up. Uh, I was born in 1979 and kind of grew up uh, as a teenager after the Soviet Union collapsed and where the threat of nuclear war uh, was much less. Whereas in my parents' generation, it wasn't considered at all outlandish to be deeply concerned for the future of humanity writ large because of the, the possibility of nuclear war. And then also uh, for people growing up now, it's not very outlandish to be concerned for, the, again, the whole future ongoing because of climate change. I was uh, kind of in between these things where it seemed a little bit more outlandish. 
But I realized that if you take the future seriously and you think about the 10,000 generations that have come before us, and that there could be at least 10,000 that come after us, it could be millions of generations, there could be such a good future if only we can get there. And thus, things that could conceivably pose a threat to that uh, would be a key priority for humanity to make sure that we survive those threats. So slowly but surely, I became increasingly convinced of this other big area and decided that I would uh, throw my weight behind it and, and try to really understand it better and, and explain these ideas to, to a broader public. So I recently read your book about existential risk, The Precipice, and I certainly recommend it to everyone listening. I think this is one of the most important books that I've read in quite some time. Um, so essentially in this book, you're looking at the various ways in which human civilization could come to a premature end. And you might think, I thought, that this would probably be a pretty depressing book, but I actually found it hugely inspiring for reasons that I hope we get into. Um, so perhaps we could begin with your account of what the precipice is and why you see it defining our entire historical era. Okay. So uh, humanity is about 200,000 years old. It depends on how you think of humanity. I I'm talking about Homo sapiens here. Maybe we're even older if you include some other related uh, hominid species as part of our, our understanding. That's about uh, 10,000 generations that we've had so far. And over that time, one of the main threads has been this escalation of our power through the agricultural revolution and the, the scientific and industrial revolutions. We've had this ever-escalating power as we've, uh, each generation has made these additional contributions to understanding of the natural world and how we can shape it, and building up our, our kind of capital, our set of uh, tools uh, that we use in order to make more and more powerful tools, as well as the knowledge behind them. And we've grown increasingly powerful, and something happened, though, um, the, the transition that I think is even more important than, say, the Industrial Revolution, because our power in uh, 1945, with the development of nuclear weapons, I think first reached the point where we pose a serious threat to our continued existence, where we're powerful enough to destroy ourselves without yet being wise enough to ensure that we don't. And this period can't last all that long, uh, in my view, as we'll, we'll get to. I put the risk this century that we irrevocably lose our future at about one in six. And I think it started last century and was substantially smaller. And, you know, if we don't uh, take serious action, it, it could be larger and larger again as we grow increasingly powerful. If so, then there's not that many centuries of this kind of high risk that we can survive. So one way or the other, I think it can only last for a handful of centuries. And so it would be a, a pivotal time in humanity's history, either the time when we destroy ourselves or the time when we put in place the safeguards necessary to ensure that we get risk low and keep it low and can have a long and uh, glorious future. Such that if we do survive and we have 10,000 more generations after us, that people in that future, when they look back and they're thinking about when were the most pivotal times in all of that history, that our time will loom very large and quite possibly the largest. Something that I was sort of left thinking about after reading your book was that 
we have this truly vast potential in the universe to survive for millions or even billions of years or even trillions of years. There are, you know, stars that live for a trillion years or more. So we have this potential to inhabit a truly astonishing future. The way that you talk about our future potential in the book is really inspiring and somewhat beyond anything that I'd heard before. Um, but yeah, having said that, as you as you point out, it's our present moment in history that could forever be thought of as the most significant because we live in this window of time when that entire open-ended future hangs in the balance. So yeah, there may never be another time when our actions have such long-term consequences. You even refer to this as a time of cosmic significance. Yes. And uh, in all of this, I'm, I, you know, I'm not the first person to reason in this way. I, I think uh, one of the most prominent uh, was Carl Sagan. In 1982, he was one of the people who developed the theory of nuclear winter, which is the best mechanism we know of as to why nuclear war could actually pose an existential risk. And then very shortly after, in, in 83, he wrote a fantastic piece that really teased out these moral implications and how it's this irrevocability of extinction and the fact that it would foreclose our entire future that could make it far more important than we'd first think when we just think of the immediate costs. He also uh, thought about this in terms of our power and our wisdom. So it's very much following in, in that tradition. Occasionally I'll try and corner someone and have a conversation about existential risk. And quite often I'll encounter a kind of ambivalence about the future that we won't be alive to see it, and no one we know will be alive to see it. So why should we care? Why should we make sacrifices? Toby, how do you respond to those sorts of attitudes? What do you think is the best way to get people invested in a future that they will never experience? Yeah, it's, it's, that's interesting. Uh, I, I've also had a lot of conversations about this over the years, uh, and in the early days, uh, the, the one that I encountered the most was more a kind of that it doesn't matter at all if we go extinct. I guess that's partly a reaction to grappling with these huge magnitudes of how large the stakes are. You know, one response is, is to try to say, actually, it's zero, it's completely irrelevant, which I think seems kind of crazy. Or uh, to suggest that actually we don't deserve to survive and it'd be better if we went extinct or something like that. Uh, so these are a few different things. I'm not sure whether I'm more alarmed by the indifference uh, to the plight of everyone who is not alive at the current moment or whether I'm you know, more alarmed by the uh, guilt of, of thinking that uh, we're a scourge upon the earth. I'll answer my own question first and then get back to yours. Um, the guilt aspect, I think that humanity is a net positive right now. But even if you thought that the harms that we are inflicting and the suffering within ourselves was enough to outweigh its benefits at the moment, the answer is to try to be better. There's nothing stopping us from being a positive force for the universe and a positive force within ourselves. This, this comes ultimately down to the choices that humans make. Why don't we strive to become something better? You know, if you have a, a friend who's suffering from depression and thinks that their life is worse than nothing and it would be good to end it all, we don't tend to say, okay, yeah, that, that's a good idea. We say, but you could have a life that, you know, that's better than nothing. Particularly if they were saying it's worse than nothing because I'm hurting all these other people. Why don't you stop hurting those people? Why don't we try to have a plan to move forward with that? So that's, that's my response to the people who think that it's negative. The people who are unmoved by it is, is a bit different. 
It sounds like these are people who are not unmoved by the idea of future generations in general, or merely possible people. A lot of people who are alive at the moment are going to have children, and we think that it really matters you know, what happens in those children's lives, even if they don't yet exist. And it matters above and beyond whether the parents will find out about it and be emotionally moved by it. You know, if you knew that you could have a child who has kind of drastic problems in their life that you'll never find out about, but there's something you can do to stop that, we would do that. And we'd think that's important. It seems that therefore it's something that's not to do with the merely possible distinction, so much as it's to do with the kind of amount that they care drifting off as time goes on, um, you know, where they care a bit about the, the nearer future and then a, a bit less about the further future and uh, something like that. And I guess my response to that would be that we don't think that that's an acceptable thing when it comes to other people who exist in different parts of space. So people who, who exist in other countries, for example, it feels kind of solipsistic or something. Even if someone said, well, it doesn't affect my emotional well-being how well the lives of people go in distant countries. It obviously affects the emotional well-being still of those other people. And that's why we should care about it. Not because of our own happiness, but because of the happiness of the people we're, we're striving to protect. So I think that something similar over time, where even if uh, someone is having trouble feeling moved by it, uh, that doesn't in any way lessen the kind of moral urgency of, uh, of acting on it. Yeah, just reflecting on the first thing that you said there about this idea that perhaps humanity is of an overall negative value and of an overall negative impact in the world. And yeah, there does seem, you know, like a, perhaps an argument for that idea that maybe there is more suffering in the world than positive states of consciousness. But as you say, even if that is the case, uh, the solution would be to try and improve that situation and um, pursue a, a more positive future. And I'll add to that, that, you know, in the natural world, uh, there is a great amount of suffering. I think there's also a great amount of flourishing. But there is certainly suffering uh, when predators eat prey, and that, that suffering is real and, and important. But if humans went away, that suffering would still be there. If you want to do something about that suffering, then the only way would be, you know, to, to survive into some kind of future where we had the kind of ecological understanding that we could do something about it. For example, maybe there's an ecosystem where the predator animal doesn't need to be there or something like that. Maybe the predator exists in multiple countries but only needs to exist in one and, and the prey don't need to suffer. Uh, you know, that's a very simple example. And in, in reality, there probably be a lot of problems with removing the predator. But, you know, people in the distant future might be able to deal with some of these, these forms of suffering. It sounds a bit like the ideas of uh, David Pierce and his concept of paradise engineering, where we... In the distant future, we attempt to re-engineer the natural world to contain less or perhaps no suffering whatsoever. And yeah, who knows what possibilities might eventually be opened up. It's certainly not something that we have the wisdom or knowledge to do right now, but it may well be a possibility. Something that you do in the book, which I found very useful, but might also be slightly controversial as well, is that you actually assign probabilities to the different existential risks that we face. Could you talk a bit about why you chose to use these statements of probability and how you arrived at them? Yeah, in the book, you know, I, I describe the, the basic situation and the moral urgency of, of uh, if our future really is at stake. And then I go through the science of the, the major different types of risks. And when I've done so, uh, I want to be able to kind of summarize where we've got to at that point and really how much 
risk there is? Um, how high is this, this probability of humanity going extinct? Are we talking about something like a one in a million kind of thing that we should be prudent and do something about it, but it's probably not going to happen? Or are we talking about something that's almost certainly going to happen? And uh, in fact, there are critics of existential risk, uh, such as Steven Pinker, who sometimes the target of their criticism is some kind of doom monger who thinks we're almost certainly going to go extinct. And then Pinker says that that would lead to uh, a lack of it fighting the battle because the, you know, it's all already lost. So it's useful to point out that you know, I think we probably will survive this century and that my probability is less than a half. And it turns out numbers are the way to do that, uh, to actually explain what I'm trying to say. So it's not that I've done some kind of frequentist analysis where uh, the Earth has, has been destroyed a hundred times and then we see what fraction of them were, were different types of risks or something like that, uh, but rather that it's a way of expressing what I'm actually trying to say. And I think that prediction with numerical uh, uh, numbers uh, is extremely useful and, and should be done all the time. And that people can feel free to disagree with the numbers as well. But it felt like it would be a disservice to the reader through fear of people complaining about putting numbers on things to actually just end up saying something like, you know, this risk is a very grave one. This risk is even more serious than the other. And statements like that. Because a grave risk of human extinction could be a 1 in 100 chance of human extinction or it could be a 9 in 10 chance. And all of a sudden, we lose almost all the information in what I'm trying to tell from what's in my mind to what the reader understands me as saying if we just use uh, English language for it. Uh, so I felt that it was important to use uh, numbers, even though they often give people this false idea that that means there's some objective process that has a 10% chance of destroying the world, like rolling a particular kind of 10-sided die or something like that. Uh, so it is a, it's a very tricky thing, and I, I, uh, I think I restricted myself to about a one-page worth of disclaimer before giving the numbers, uh, but uh, uh, I knew I would get in trouble, uh, but I thought that it was just a disservice to people to not include them. So you've already alluded to this one-in-six probability that you give of an existential catastrophe happening in the next century. So that really is something that could readily happen. And just to give that some context, you gave the previous century odds of one in a hundred of existential catastrophe. So it's a very significant jump in the wrong direction. Um, so what is it that you see as being the primary driving force of these growing risks? Humanity's increased power over the world around us in particular. So we've always been subject to natural risks. But that is an area where we can use some kind of um, long-run frequencies to give ourselves some idea of the probability, because there are other species that have gone extinct due to these things. And there's different ways of trying to, to do this. I look at several of them in the book. One of them is to, to note that we've already survived 2,000 centuries without going extinct uh, from natural uh, catastrophes. And that gives us some reason to think that the probability is in the vicinity of 1 in 2,000 per century or less. And you can look at uh, the lifespans of species that have gone extinct, uh, and the typical uh, mammalian species lasts for about 10,000 centuries or a million years. And so that would suggest something like a 1 in 10,000 chance per century of going extinct from natural catastrophes. Or if you think it has to be as big as something like a mass extinction event to wipe out humanity, because unlike most species, we're spread to so many different ecosystems and continents. In that case, it would be more like a 1 in a million chance per century. In all these cases, um, you know, we're talking about 
important, but very small numbers. And I think that, as, as you can see from what I just said, it's useful to have put numbers on them. Otherwise, if I said important but small, some people might think 2% per century or something, something like much higher than what I'm actually trying to say. But then that all changed when we developed nuclear weapons, and then subsequently, I think, with climate change as well. And then I'm particularly concerned in the coming 100 years with new technologies where the threat isn't quite with us yet, but will be soon, such as the threat of engineered pandemics that could be much worse than anything we've, we've suffered so far, or indeed certain threats from artificial intelligence, which is not aligned with human values. Yeah. The, uh, so the definition of an existential catastrophe it's not necessarily identical to human extinction, but it's really the destruction of our long-term potential. So you have this concept of a failed world scenario where human life does continue, at least for a while, but due to certain actions, we've placed a permanent cap on how far we can go in terms of our potential. Could you talk a bit about some of these possible failed worlds and how they might come about. Yeah, that's right. So the way I think of it is you could imagine a world, like one way that the destruction of our potential can be locked in is if there's just no more people left. So there's no more choices that ever get to be made. But you could also imagine a version where we lose civilization completely. So we're, we're like um, going back to a, um, a foraging era before we had settlements and farming and cities, written language and so forth. In, in that case, I think we could still probably come back, but maybe you could have a, a setback or environmental destruction so severe that we still couldn't come back. But then there's also these possibilities where humanity continues and civilization continues, but we're still kind of trapped. There's still some irrevocability to how things go wrong. In uh, 1984, the book uh, by George Orwell, he tries to sketch out uh, such a locked-in world where he's imagining a totalitarian regime where the institutions that are established make it so that there's almost no possibility of ever overthrowing it. I think he does a fairly good job of this. In the scenario he sets up, uh, even the one dissident meeting another dissident in order to try to plot against the entire regime turns out not to have happened. It was just a, a plant, a government inspector who dobs him in. So it's a kind of world where it's hard for even two people who want to overthrow it to ever even meet, let alone you know build up a coalition of hundreds of thousands of people who could try to overthrow it. I find it worryingly believable, although not perhaps producible with today's technology. It may be that we would need more advanced technology to get there. And it wouldn't have to be the case that such a thing would last forever. Basically, what would have to happen is that in order for it to count as an existential catastrophe, is if it could last a long time, such that it's more likely that from that point we fail downwards rather than break out and move upwards. So for example, that at some point during this regime, an asteroid hits and it's destroyed, or at some point during this regime, some other existential catastrophe strikes. But where it was entering this regime, that if you looked back at things, you would say was the definitive moment at which humanity's potential was all but destroyed. And so uh, I think that is a kind of paradigm example. You, you could also imagine, you know, I try to imagine some other cases of dystopian futures, which are not this kind of stereotype totalitarian thing. Yeah, it is quite worrying, though, that these kinds of technological totalitarian scenarios uh, getting locked in, um, the likelihood of that is just increasing as we become more technologically advanced and interlinked. 
So a lot of the anthropogenic risk, the human-made risk, is associated with our advancing technology. Certainly there's no doubt that technology has enormously improved our lives in all sorts of ways. But given that technology has now brought us to this place where we could readily destroy ourselves, it does uh, sort of raise the question that has technology gone too far? And there are some academics who uh, do actually argue that we need to cease our technological advancement and that it presents more dangers than positives overall. I don't personally agree with that myself. Uh, it seems to me that we'll need technology in order to realize the majority of our vast potential. But Toby, what in your view is the right way to think about technology? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, we could all do with some kind of re-examination of technology in our lives and we'll probably find some instances where particular components of technology, maybe a particular app or a particular device is actually making your life a bit worse and you'd be better off without it. Um, there could also be cases where, which are more troubling, where it makes your life a little bit better, uh, but only because everyone else is using the same thing. So maybe we'd all be better if we got off Facebook, but it's not in your interest to unilaterally get off it because you'll miss out on all of the things that everyone else is invited to and you'll be excluded. So the local incentives are for each person to stay in, even though it would be better if we all got out. Those things are more troubling and uh, stronger versions of those things gets into one of the dystopian futures that I, I consider. But when we think about technology over the future, yeah, my view is that without technological improvements, I think humanity can't achieve its full potential. So one simple way to see that is that we will be doomed by the next asteroid or other large-scale natural catastrophic risk without some ability to protect ourselves from it or to build our bases on other planets, things like that. So I think that without technology, our future is maybe it's as long as our past, maybe even a bit longer, maybe a little bit brighter if we just kind of paused everything forever. But I think it still falls far short of what we could achieve. I consider in the, in the book, in the final chapter, I divide it into three different areas. I look at how much longer our future could be, uh, so in terms of time. There aren't that many great obstacles to us uh, surviving for about a billion years on the Earth, or trillions of years if we can uh, leave the Earth, whereas uh, we've only had hundreds of thousands of years so far. Perhaps we're really in our earliest infancy, and so much is ahead of us that if we were to fail at this point, that we really would lose almost everything. And that if we were to you know, put a permanent technological pause in, then we basically would lose almost our, our whole life you know, for the sake of protecting the, the next bit. That's one way to think about that. I also look at the kind of space, how much larger our civilization could be in terms of if we were to spread to the furthest reaches of the galaxy or, or beyond. And then also at how much better each of our lives could be in a future devoted to actually the flourishing of humanity. So I kind of consider those three different dimensions. And, and together, I think that there's so much potential for a truly glorious future that far outstrips the present. And that if we were to abandon technology, then we would lose all of that. That's not to say that we shouldn't go a bit more slow or carefully. I think there's a lot to be said for, for being more prudent on this. You mentioned in the book that there could be a lot of existential risk associated with technologies we haven't yet created. 
And uh, something the, the philosopher Nick Bostrom said on this, which really stuck with me, was that it may be just a matter of time before we discover a technology that is so destructive and uncontainable that civilizations simply can't coexist alongside it. And as you talk about in the book, uh, there was a time, at least, when it looked like perhaps nuclear weapons might be such a technology. That just a single nuclear detonation could have had catastrophic results. Um, I wonder if you could say a bit more about that, because when you, you talk about it in the book, and it's, it's quite eye-opening, the risks that were, uh, that were taken there. Yeah, this, it's a fascinating episode. When the uh, atomic scientists uh, were developing nuclear weapons, um, the kind of very early days of the Manhattan Project, in, in fact, I think it wasn't called that yet, there was a, a meeting that happened in, in Berkeley, and uh, Edward Teller was there, um, who would go on to develop the hydrogen bomb, the fusion-based bomb. And he had already had the idea, even before they developed the first atomic bomb. And when he was trying to work out how would you make a thermonuclear explosion work, he realized that, well, you'd probably start by having a fission bomb go off to trigger the, the temperatures and pressures necessary to start fusion. And then he noticed that there was a whole lot of fusion material just in the ocean in terms of uh, the hydrogen in the water, and also in the air in terms of the nitrogen in air, and that these things can fuse and indeed were thought to fuse in stars and power certain types of stars. So he shared this, this point with people that actually, far from a thing that has to be carefully engineered to turn a fission explosion into a massive fusion explosion, maybe it's the type of thing that would just happen as soon as you detonate any atomic bomb, that it will start, that the phrase is igniting the atmosphere with a huge thermonuclear fusion fireball that would start at the nuclear explosion and then just go expand beyond that and tear through the atmosphere around the world and uh, burn off the atmosphere and create vast amounts of heat. That if not destroying all life on Earth, we now know that there are extremophile bacteria that live you know, at the bottom of ocean trenches and near volcanic vents and things like that. Maybe, maybe there'd be some bacteria that would survive, but certainly all complex life would be destroyed if that could happen. So he gave a, a presentation on this, which must, must be one of the most interesting <laughs> presentations that's ever been given. Oppenheimer, who had organized the meeting and was the leader of the atomic bomb project, he then rushed off to talk to his superiors about this and to warn them of this possibility that their secret weapon might actually destroy the world. So this was taken quite seriously, but Hans uh, Better was also there, and he was a, um, you know, one of the pioneers of thermonuclear physics, which had only been developed a very short time earlier. I think he'd already received a Nobel Prize for it. You know, he was in the audience and thought that you know, he was clearly the expert, and he, he poo-pooed the idea quite a lot. It turns out that he was uh, mostly right about that, but I don't think that he had any real claim to confidence about it, since we're only really in the first, I think, decade or the first two decades of understanding anything about fusion, since it had even been thought of. And the Manhattan Project would go on to do some analysis of whether this was possible. They ultimately concluded that it wouldn't be, because the explosion would basically dissipate heat very quickly into the atmosphere, and so it would lose its initial very high temperature and would no longer be hot enough to sustain fusion. And that indeed turned out to be correct. But people weren't sure of this, and uh, Enrico Fermi and, and others were extremely concerned about this all the way up to the Trinity test. 
And so when that first nuclear weapon was exploded at the, the Trinity test site, some people were concerned that it could destroy all of humanity. They thought that it was very unlikely, but conceivable. And in fact, uh, one of the people who was there wrote in his diary entry for the day that when the initial flash was much brighter than initially expected, he thought for a moment that indeed they had destroyed humanity and that it had created this explosion that was intense enough. Uh, so that shows that it wasn't just something that was merely conceivable, you know, like maybe, maybe due to randomness, every oxygen molecule will go to the other side of the room and you'll suffocate. I guess that's technically possible or something, you know, in terms of the probability. It, it, they weren't talking about something like that. They were talking about something that once you see a really bright light, you know, some of them think it's happened. Um, so they must have been thinking of it as, as a much closer possibility. I think it's fascinating going beyond that, that there's no evidence that any elected officials were actually warned about this possibility. The scientists and military took this completely into their own hands and kind of took responsibility for imposing what they thought was some kind of risk of destroying all of humanity. They thought that they'd kind of covered it and they'd, they'd written a paper uh, which explained why they thought it couldn't happen. Uh, but the final lines of the paper, you know, say that more research is needed. And it seems wild to have a paper on will your experiment destroy the world, conclude with more research is needed and then run the experiment. I don't understand how that could possibly make sense. Uh, and then as they kind of, I guess, a couple of final additional points on this, the team uh, that met in Berkeley in that summer then went on to make an additional calculation. So they, they made two big calculations. The first one was, could a bare fission weapon ignite the atmosphere? And the second one was to try to understand if you wanted to build a thermonuclear weapon deliberately, what would you need? And they thought that you would need lithium and deuterium, and in particular that the lithium, that only one of two isotopes of lithium would work. And so you'd have to purify it to get rid of the isotope that wouldn't work, just as they have to purify the uranium to get the isotope that works. And it turned out uh, years later, when uh, one of the first thermonuclear bombs was tested in the Castle Bravo test, that the explosion was much larger than expected, about three times larger, and irradiated a nearby Japanese fishing boat, causing an international incident. The reason that the explosion was vastly larger than they expected was because actually this, this other type of lithium did interact and contributed its full mass to the size of the explosion and in fact contributed, therefore, most of the energy of the explosion. And so it's kind of shocking to me that they made these two calculations. They bet humanity's existence on the first one and got it right, and then the second one they got wrong. And that doesn't mean that, that there's like a one in two chance that, that the other one was wrong, but it doesn't bode well for that kind of process. It doesn't really look like humanity having its act together. Like, I'm glad that they did as much work as they did and uh, that they spent hundreds, maybe thousands of hours looking into the possibility of their bomb destroying humanity. But it wasn't subject to any kind of peer review. It wasn't subject to any kind of democratic oversight. And then perhaps on top of all of that, by the time they actually tested the atomic bomb, they didn't need to test it. Hitler was already dead. Germany had surrendered by the time of the Trinity test. It was all about ending the Pacific War faster. And that doesn't seem to be a good reason to risk humanity on this, this topic. It's pretty amazing that, you know, given there was, as you say, this epistemological uncertainty that just a single nuclear detonation could ignite the atmosphere and effectively end a complex life on the planet. And yet that tangible uncertainty 
didn't prevent the physicists from going ahead and <laughs> giving it a try. Yeah. It's quite <laughs> astonishing to think about. And if you if you look at the the physicists and and you you hear their explanations for why they built um, such a terrible thing as the atomic bomb, they were largely motivated by the worry that uh, the Nazi regime would have access first. You know that they would win the race to get there and develop these weapons first and hold the world to nuclear blackmail. And I think that that may indeed have been a, a good reason to work on this project. Uh, but they didn't seem to notice that that had gone away by the end. Or maybe that by that point, just the scientists had no ability to stop what they'd started, and it was uh, you know the military was uh, riding this thing onwards. But it's uh, it is pretty shocking, and in fact we know from uh, from records that came out, um, I think after the Nuremberg trials, that uh, at one point uh, Hitler had in fact been told about the possibility of igniting the atmosphere from the German nuclear program. And so there's a kind of chilling quote by Albert Speer about his uh, telling uh, the Fuhrer about this possibility and that Hitler occasionally made uh, dark jokes about how one day in his thousand-year Reich, the scientists in their otherworldly urges to control the universe might uh, turn the Earth into a star, but that he thought that that probably wouldn't happen for a long time. So, but it's, it's fascinating that they did escalate it all the way to the top, but the Americans uh, did not. Um, they had, you know, sensible people, you know, some of the smartest people in the world uh, looking at the problem, but it doesn't seem like it was their problem to, you know, take responsibility for. So speaking of not being able to stop things once they've started, <laughs> you've argued that the most serious existential risks are associated with artificial intelligence. And so by your estimate, AI is several orders of magnitude more dangerous than nuclear war, more dangerous than climate change. And uh, to quote the probability you gave in the book, AI actually represents around a one in 10 chance of causing an existential catastrophe in the next century. So AI, in your view, is one of the greatest risks to our civilization and to our long-term potential. Could you talk a bit about why you see AI being so dangerous and why it doesn't get the same kind of publicity as the other dangers that we think about? Yeah, well, I mean, on that, that last bit first, there, there, there's plenty of, uh, you know, newspaper articles saying, you know, with pictures of Terminators on them saying that AI could destroy the world. Um, it's generally low-quality explanations of what's going on that, that really misses the point and um you know if anything it actually makes the those of us trying to do serious work on this have a harder time when there are such kind of poor takes on it but you know a lot of people have indeed heard of the possibility that uh, that some kind of ai could eventually destroy humanity it's such that it's kind of become a cliche but uh it is not taken uh, as seriously yet I think that that's, that's quite natural uh, in that if, if the bomb had not been dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, then I think we would take nuclear war a lot less seriously. Part of you know, witnessing the, the true horrible effects of this, it's kind of scarred it into our psyche uh, and makes us take it with a certain degree of gravity that we, we might not otherwise have for it. But now getting back to the main question though, what is it that, that alarms me so much about this? I, I think that, that there's different ways of looking at it. The one that I think is, is perhaps most useful kind of framing for why one should take this seriously is when you think about humanity and how did humanity get into this position that we're in where we have so much power compared to any other species on the planet. And in fact, 
where the other species, for better or worse, kind of at our mercy. So if you think about, say, chimpanzees, you know, a very closely related species, their future is not theirs to control. Whether they flourish um, over the long-term future is ultimately a matter of what humans do, whether humans recklessly encroach upon their habitats and maybe destroy all of the natural places they could live or whether they don't. But the chimpanzees don't have the power to, to say that. Ultimately, it comes down to the humans. And that's true for, for other species as well. In fact, all or almost all of them. Maybe bacteria is an exception where they're going to continue to live regardless of what we do. But almost all species, ultimately, are not in control of their futures. But we are. And if we look at that and we try to understand why that is, a lot of it comes down to our cognitive abilities. So what goes on in our brains. It's not that we're the, the fastest or the strongest animals by any stretch, but rather that it's, you could think of it as intelligence. Maybe it's a bit broader than what we normally think of as intelligence, because it includes, say, our abilities to have language and our abilities to cooperate with each other very successfully. And ultimately, our ability to have this cumulative culture where we each make these small contributions to knowledge, but then we can pass this knowledge on to other people and we can kind of aggregate it together over time, both within our, our local group, but then more importantly, across the generations, such that 10,000 generations later, we have the, the power to you know, leave the earth and the power to kind of unleash the power of atomic forces and things like this. And other species aren't doing anything like that. So it's our, it's our cognitive abilities. And that is exactly the area that artificial intelligence studies. The kind of ultimate holy grail of, of AI has been to develop what we call an artificial general intelligence. So a system that can learn and reason about the world and act in the world and fulfill its goals, fulfill a very general set of goals, as opposed to a very specialized system, and ultimately do all the kinds of things that, that humans can do. But if we created such a thing, and it was better than humans at the one thing that sets humans apart, then why would it still be us who are in control of our future? And why would we still have all of these rich possibilities open to us of lasting for billions of years or to create worlds where we can flourish much more than we can at the moment or to go out and uh, explore and settle other planetary systems? Why would we be in control of our destiny and not at the mercy of our creations? And there, there could be some answers to that. So, for example, if we can make it so that these AI creations, if their ideal world is the same as our ideal world, then maybe in striving to kind of fulfill their goals, they will realize a utopia for us. Or maybe they'll be able to follow our commands such that they don't have their own aims that they're trying to achieve. Instead, they achieve whatever we ask them to do and where we're in tight control over that. But unfortunately, both of those things turn out to be extremely technically difficult to actually implement. And it's the AI scientists who are focused on those questions. How do you align the values of an AI system with human values? Or how do you make it so that it can actually be controlled? They're the people who are saying this is extremely hard and that developments of that are lagging behind the developments of capabilities of AI systems, such that there's a bit of a race between will we get to fully powerful artificial general intelligence before we achieve the ability to control it. And so one way of looking at my estimate that there's something like a 1 in 10 chance that we'll have an existential catastrophe due to an unaligned artificial general intelligence in the next 100 years, that might look like a very high number, 1 in 10. But one way to think about it is 
to break it into two pieces. What's the chance that we develop artificial general intelligence that exceeds human capabilities in almost every area? And then what's the chance that it's our undoing? With the first question, that is a technical question about the field of AI. And uh, there was a big survey done in, in 2016 of uh, 300 of the top researchers in machine learning, people who were giving papers at uh, the NeurIPS conference. And they were asked, when would an AI system be able to accomplish every task better and more cheaply than human workers? And on average, they estimated a 50% chance of this happening by the year 2061, which is now, you know, 41 years away, much less than a century. That doesn't mean that they're right about that, but it means that it's not an outlandish view to think that there's a 50% chance that we'll reach this kind of holy grail of artificial intelligence within the next 100 years. That is, in fact, the typical estimate of the typical researcher in the field. And also, if you ask the general public, they give very similar answers. So it's both the typical answer of people everywhere and of the experts. So it's not an unreasonable starting point uh, to think that it's about 50-50 as to whether we develop that in the next 100 years, maybe even a bit more than 50% chance. And then you could say, well, what's the chance that it then goes wrong in some way where these machines ultimately control the future at our expense? And uh, if you thought that there was a one in five chance that given that it happens, that it goes wrong, that would get you to the one in 10 number. So roughly speaking, that's how I break it down, that I think there's about a 50-50 chance that it will happen, that we'll get these systems that can do almost everything humans can do and better in the next hundred years. And that there's something like an 80% chance that we survive that transition with our full long-term potential intact but still this 20% chance that we don't. And if you multiply it out, that leads to a one in 10 existential risk. You mentioned there that there is this possibility with AI that we as humans might eventually be succeeded by it in some way and effectively hand off our future to artificial beings that we've created. And it's possible to imagine that we may be very convinced at that time that we've created something which is uh, superior to us in, in every way and a worthy next step in our evolution. And yet, as you say, there is this chance that in allowing ourselves to be replaced, we inadvertently lose something of enormous value and valuable enough to count as an existential catastrophe. Consciousness here strikes me as being the main candidate. Um, but Toby, could you talk a bit more about this kind of outcome and why it would count as an existential catastrophe? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question to delve into. That was a very abstract argument I just gave. And, you know, it, what exactly am I saying would be the thing that we'd lose and, and so on? Um, I think that the, the value of giving such an abstract argument is that it, it's somewhat robust to the particular questions about what we'd lose. But it's also useful occasionally to kind of zoom in and check that it makes sense. You know, um, are we talking about human extinction in this scenario? You know, how does this fit in with what I just said about human extinction versus dystopia versus collapse of civilization as different kinds of existential risk? My guess is that actually we wouldn't literally be talking about human extinction because an AI system that we are at its mercy in much the same way as, uh, as we are interested in some of the other animals, even if we don't ascribe them intrinsic value, we're interested in them to understand the, the world and the universe better, uh, that AI systems would be interested in their creators, presumably extremely interested and would at least leave some of us around, but probably more to do experiments on rather than to fulfill our ultimate destiny in the universe. 
So it might be more like a dystopian future rather than an actual extinction. But in either case, I think it would be locked in, and that's kind of this key idea, that we would achieve, you know, let's say less than 1% of what we could have achieved, and that there will no longer be any way that, that we can get above that small fraction. Yeah, uh, I think there was something else to your question, though, that I haven't quite answered. I think it's this issue of, of consciousness. You know, it really does seem that whether the future holds value depends directly on whether consciousness continues to be present in the future. That's right. So one thing that I'm not saying in all of this, I'm not trying to be some kind of humanity chauvinist. I'm not saying that uh, only humans matter and that animals don't matter. I think it's entirely plausible that most of the value on the earth at the moment is actually coming from the lives of uh, the animals that vastly outnumber us. But that of all the different animal species, only humans are actually receptive to moral reasoning and aim at achieving a world that is more good and more just. It's not the case that other animals are even attempting to do that. That's not through any fault of their own, but it does mean that if we lost humans, we'd lose the only species that's responsive to this, and therefore we'd lose all forces in the universe that are kind of pointing towards the good and the just. Similarly, I don't think that all of the intrinsic value in the future will be necessarily created by humans. It could be that we create some kind of worthy successor to ourselves, just as we arose out of other species. It could be that we eventually evolve into a somewhat different species uh, that should no longer be called humans, or that we genetically engineer our successors, or that we develop computer systems, artificial intelligences, that ultimately are better at achieving all the kinds of values and things that we care about uh, in the universe. I think that that's very plausible, but that we shouldn't be in any, any rush to do so. I think that it's also clearly one of the places where everything could go wrong, if you get it wrong. Even if we just created several different versions of humanity, if we kind of had a laissez-faire approach to genetic engineering, say, over the centuries, and that could lead to a kind of splintering of humanity into different groups that started to have irreconcilable objectives in a key way even more so than, than where we are. You might say that we're already in a situation like that, uh, but in which case, it's already too late. But better not to create additional rifts um, that, that could be impossible to reconcile. Similarly, if we spread out into totally different planets in the next century, then maybe that could create, again, the seeds of conflict that's very difficult um, to actually reconcile. I think we are perhaps at a, at a rare moment, you know, we're kind of the, one of the last moments where we're all together, and, you know, we're all in some ways unified. Only in recent centuries have we actually connected all of the people in the world and have this kind of unity of humanity and have started to discover our long past, not just be thinking about our present, but about humanity over all time. And so this could be a very useful time to make those choices. So that leaves open the idea that it could be that there are worthy successes to humanity in terms of artificial intelligence. But, as you say, if they were not conscious, then if we didn't continue, it's not clear where the value would come from in the universe. Not everyone thinks that all the value would necessarily come from conscious beings having good lives. Maybe they could still create great achievements and great works of art that would have their own intrinsic value. I tend to think that the, the value of such things depends upon there being conscious entities to appreciate them. But, you know, people disagree about that, and maybe I'm wrong, and maybe there still would be some value in, in that universe. 
but it could still be a lot less value. And also, we don't need to take that chance. You know, we don't need to bet everything on a particular current interpretation about what matters in the universe. We could instead wait until we have a much better idea about this before we make these irreversible choices that could affect the whole future. Absolutely. It does seem, at least now, that even a galaxy-spanning civilization of super-intelligent AI would, could hold no value if there was no consciousness there to apprehend any value. And so, yeah, it does seem in, in quite an important way that value depends on consciousness being preserved. And as you say, it's possible that we're wrong about that, but it almost kind of leads me to wonder whether consciousness ought to be thought of as our identity in a fundamental sense. That, you know, beyond whatever else we might change about ourselves and about our minds over millions of years, I would hope that we at least continue to be conscious beings on some level and that we continue to have access to this dimension of value that exists in the universe. Yeah, I think so uh, as well. Uh, it is interesting to see what various uh, science fiction authors have, have explored in this area, or philosophers like David Chalmers, who's done some great work on this, and he's, he's done some recent exploratory thinking about trying to imagine non-conscious entities that could still have important moral worth. I think it's, it's hard to rule that out, but by the same token, I would bet on uh, consciousness being an important foundational aspect. It's not necessarily that just consciousness itself is the thing that's of value, but more that it's, it's the capacity to have value or something like that. It's like a foundation upon which, if you don't have it, um, there's, you know, or it's like the size of a container that could be filled with something good or something bad. But if you don't have a container at all, then you can't have anything that's good or bad. Toby, we're, we're coming to the end of our time together today. Uh, I want to say that I think that your work is incredibly important. And this book that you've written, The Precipice, is really a gift that you've given to the world. And I certainly recommend everyone listening to, to read it. Before we come to the end of our conversation, where should our audience go to find out more about you and your work? Yeah, uh, if you go to uh, tobyord.com or to uh, theprecipice.com, you can find out a lot more about this. You could also follow me on Twitter at tobyordoxford. Okay, well, I will definitely make sure there are links to all of those sites in the description of this episode. Uh, well, thank you again, Toby. It's been a real honor to have this conversation, and I'd love to do this again sometime, and perhaps next time even focus on your work with effective altruism, mm. uh, which is also very important and very interesting and inspiring to me personally as well. So, yeah, thank you uh, very much for joining me today. Thank you very much. It's, it's been a great, great conversation. Hi, everyone. Adrian here. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Toby Ord. If you'd like to find out more information about the subjects in today's episode, please check the links in the description. Remember, if you enjoyed this episode, hit like, subscribe. If you're listening on podcast services, please consider giving us a nice rating. That really helps us out. And finally, but most importantly, a huge thank you to those of you who are supporting my work on Patreon. Without you, Waking Cosmos would not exist. So thank you very much to those of you who are supporting my work. If you're not already, but you'd like to support my work, you can do so at patreon.com slash wakingcosmos. 
Okay, that is about it from me today. I will see you next time for another episode of Waking Cosmos, exploring the nature of consciousness, reality, and life's place in the universe. Until then, I hope you have a beautiful day.